last time on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. By 1981, our life was half arguments, fighting, slapping, pushing, wrestling. Ann Anderson Doyle, she's going to tell you that Kathy told her that Bob Durst had beaten and that he had threatened her. She's going to tell you that Kathy said she literally feared for her life. On January 31st, 1982, Bob Durst and his wife were together in South Sale that evening when she came home. They had a pushing and shoving argument. She was never heard from again. During the 2010 interviews, again, for the first time, Durst admits, you know what? I never talked to Kathy that night. That was a lie that I told to, quote, put her in the city. The reporter missing, it's their problem. Now, it was going to become their problem to figure out yes, what the truth the was. the police look for missing persons. What am I supposed to do? Now, it was at this point in time, he enlists the help of his trusted and close friend, Susan Berman, to be his spokesperson. The last person allegedly to have contact with Kathy was Dr. Albert Cooperman, who was the associate dean of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. During the original investigation, Dr. Cooperman assumed it was Kathy he had spoken to on the phone. Why did you think it was Kathy Durst calling? She said she was Kathleen Durst. Multiple times over the years, Susan Berman discussed the fact that she had made the call. She said, I did something today and did it for Bobby. And then her next statement was, if anything ever happened to me, Bobby did it. Something was not going to happen to her for another approximately 18 years. But eventually, the evidence will show that the defendant cleaned up a loose end. 18 years later, Susan was shot in the back of the head. According to the prosecution, it was Robert Durst who pulled the trigger. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst, presented by Crime Story Media and ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. On Sunday, January 31st, 1982, Robert and Kathy Durst had a fight at the Salem residence, one that allegedly resulted in Kathy's death. But the next morning, the dean of Albert Einstein Medical School received a call from Kathy saying she was ill and couldn't make it to rotations. It was an odd call. Deputy DA John Lewin tells the jury that Kathy's classmates will testify that students would usually phone their rotation if they were feeling ill, not the dean. They'll testify that calling the dean doesn't seem like something that Kathy would do. According to Lewin, it doesn't sound like Kathy, because it wasn't Kathy who made that call. 
Lewin plays a clip from a prior hearing in which Susan's friend Linda Obst takes the stand. Susan may have met Linda when she was just starting her career, but now Obst is an established Hollywood producer with credits such as The Fisher King, Sleepless in Seattle, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, and Interstellar. In the video, Linda recalls a discussion that she had with Susan. She once told me that she called Albert Einstein Medical Center for him and said she was Kathy. It came up in the context of she did the sorts of things for Bobby that Gladys did for Davy. Gladys and Davy were Susan Berman's mother and father. And Davy was a notorious gangster affiliated with the organized crime group known as Murder Incorporated. He replaced Bugsy Siegel running the Flamingo Hotel after Bugsy Siegel was killed by New York mobsters. And the example that she gave was that when Bobby was asked her to or needed her to, she made this phone call to Albert Einstein in Kathy's name. In terms of publicity for yourself, given your position and what you do, is this the kind of thing that is in any way helpful to your career? On the contrary. Can you explain? It is not good for a movie producer to be associated with a murder trial. And in the end, if I were to ask you, can you tell us, why are you here? For justice. Linda's testimony is compelling, but she's not the only witness who has memories of Susan saying she helped Robert after Kathy's disappearance. While Susan might have been Durst's trusted friend, it seems she couldn't be trusted to keep a secret. Lewin tells the jury that over the years, Susan told a version of her story to half a dozen people. One of those people was Susie Harmon. Susie Harmon was another close friend of Susan's. Uh, they met when they were in the sixth grade. Susie is gonna tell you what Susan Berman said to her. He said something about there was something on the stairs and he was going to be... I just remember there was a stairway-involved conversation and... Um, he, he, you said he was going to be blamed. Did she, in discussing this, did Susan reference that it involved Kathy or her disappearance? Yes. Okay. They so had had a fight. Uh, this is what I recall. Wait, wait, let me, there let, was let, an accident. Okay. Bobby was going to be blamed. She helped him so there wouldn't be blame. There was a fight between Robert and Kathy. Something happened on the stairs. Then there was an accident. Bobby was going to be blamed, so Susan helped him. That's the story that Susie Harmon recalls. Susan also confided in her friend Nick Chavin, the former struggling musician, who Susan had introduced to Durst, a connection that launched Chavin's career in advertising. With Nick, Susan was a bit more explicit about what occurred between Robert and his missing wife. Susan said to me specifically that Bob killed Kathy, and I said, no, he didn't. And she said, yes, he did. And we argued about that, and she said, we love both of them, Kathy's gone, we love Bob. We need to protect him. Bob killed Kathy. I said, how do you know? She said, he told me. A theme of these witnesses, particularly with Dick Chavin, is going to be that 
Susan made very clear to him on repeated occasions that Kathy's gone. We can't help her. We love Bob. He's here and we need to protect him. Susan may have made a phone call to protect Durst, but according to the prosecution, Robert still had a mess on his hands. Lewin tells the jury that Durst had to clean up after Kathy's murder and dispose of the body. So where was Bob Durst and what was he doing at the time that Kathy allegedly disappeared? So we go back to February of 1982. So remember, Kathy disappears. She's last seen alive the party at Gilberta's on Sunday, January 31st. Monday, the evidence will show, was February 1st. Now, Durst told Detective Strzok that he got up about 7 a.m. and that he left around noon. He gave a very detailed version of everything that he did, which you will see. But, Lewin tells the jury, in that detailed account Durst gave to Detective Strzok, he failed to mention a trip he made on Monday morning to Caldor, an all-purpose discount store. The Caldor store was about 20 minutes away from the Salem residence. There's been a stipulation in this case that Durst did make a purchase at that store on the morning of February 1st. The jury will not be provided with information regarding what Durst bought, but Lewin says the evidence will show that the store sold cleaning products. After his trip to Caldor, Robert made several collect calls to the Durst organization. Robert informed Detective Strzok of these calls and they are confirmed by his phone records. The fact that Durst always called the office collect will end up being an important element in this case. To illustrate Robert's reasoning for calling collect, Lewin plays a clip from Durst's interviews for the 2015 HBO documentary series, The Jinx. Someone said that you that you used to call the office collect. Oh, all the time. Why did you do that? I didn't want to pay for it. Let Seymour pay for it. The only reason I'm calling is because he wants me to call. Remember, Seymour is Bob's father, who at that time is the head of the Durst organization. The evidence can show that Bob is calling collect because Bob is cheap. Now, Bob's younger brother, Douglas, is going to testify that at this time in 1982, the only individuals who their office would accept collect calls from were he and his brother, Bob. Robert told Detective Strzok that on Monday night, he returned to the Riverside penthouse where he saw evidence that Kathy had been there. A Coke bottle on the table, a few things moved, the newspaper had been brought in. Durst said he spent the night in Manhattan and on Tuesday, he drove to Connecticut. Tuesday, February 2nd, Durst told Detective Strzok that on Tuesday, he drove to Connecticut to look at land parcels for the Durst organization. Douglas Durst is the head of the Durst organization. So Douglas Durst is going to testify that he is very certain that's a lie. It's not true. Now, Durst added at the time that while he was in Connecticut on Tuesday, he called the office regarding business. There is no record of such a call. It does not exist. It did not happen. However, there were four collect calls that were made and accepted from southern New Jersey. Now, these collect calls were made from three payphones on the Jersey Shore, which is basically a two-hour drive 
from the Duracell Salem residents. The payphones were all adjacent to the Pine Barrens, a notorious mafia burial ground made famous by the Sopranos. Lewin tells the jury that the evidence will demonstrate that the soil in the Pine Barrens is sand. It doesn't freeze and therefore can be shoveled even during the winter, making it ideal for disposing bodies all year round. Perhaps the most famous case related to the area occurred in 1967, when J. Edgar Hoover announced that what he called a Cosa Nostra burial farm had been discovered in the uninhabited woodlands. On the mafia farm, agents found a gangster buried under a chicken coop and human remains in an oil drum filled with hydrochloric acid. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. While Durst was allegedly in New Jersey, Kathy's sister became increasingly worried about Kathy's sudden absence. She started looking for answers. Now, in the week after Kathy disappeared, Kathy's sister, Mary Hughes, and Mary's husband, Tom, searched the Durst South Salem residence. They're going to say that while searching the bedroom trash can, Tom Hughes is going to tell you he found a piece of paper. This piece of paper has become known as the Digno. There is a stipulation. Bob Durst has admitted by stipulation he wrote that Digno. A photo of the dig note appears on Lewin's PowerPoint. Blue ink scrawled onto white paper. Durst's half-cursive handwriting takes the form of a list. Now, Mr. Durst was confronted about this during the last interview with Jarecki and Smerling on April 18, 2012. Jarecki hands Durst the dig note, and Durst reads it aloud. Town, dump, bridge, dig, boat. Other shovel or check car chuck rental. So this is my handwriting. I have no idea what that means, what I was writing. And she found this in the trash around the time when Kathy disappeared. Yeah. So I and did she figure it all out? Okay. Town dump bridge. I don't even know where the town dump is up there. They they collected garbage. We never took anything to a dump. Yeah, I mean, I think her, what she said to the police was, well, this was the list that Bob made after Kathy was dead. These were his options on what to do with the body. In the interview, Durst shrugs and continues to stare at the letter, seemingly befuddled by its meaning. The town dump or the bridge or the dig, the boat. We had a sailboat on the little lake. Lewin tells the jury that after filing the missing persons report, Durst behaved as if he knew Kathy wasn't ever coming back. February 8th. This is only a week after Kathy disappeared. Karen Minatella, remember, she's the property manager 
of the East 86th Street apartment where Kathy is living. And she's going to tell you about an eerie discovery that she made. Lewin plays a clip of Karen Minatello's testimony from a prior hearing in which she explains what she discovered one day when the building's trash compactor jammed. It told me that the compactor was all jammed up. So I went down into the basement, into the compactor room, and the porters were pulling out clothes, books, personal possessions uh, that were jamming up and broke the machine. There was notebooks, there was, you know, personal, personal items, hair dryers, makeup, uh, clothing. This is Deputy District Attorney Eugene Miata asking Minatello questions. Okay. And did you make an attempt to, to try to identify whose belongings those might have been in the trash compactor? Yeah, I picked up a book. Yeah, I picked up a book, says Minatello. I think it was a notebook or a textbook. It had Kathy's name in it. Kathy Durst? Yes. Now, the evidence is going to show that Mr. Durst is the person who had access to that apartment and who got rid of those materials. And the evidence is going to further show that, unlike most people who the stages of grief, denial, and anger, and bargaining. Mr. Durst went right into acceptance, so she's not coming back. And the evidence will show that he threw those materials out because he knew Kathy was not coming back. Now, while Kathy's family did everything they could do to assist in the investigation, within three months of her disappearance, Bob Durst quit cooperating with the authorities who were looking for his missing wife. Now, the investigation eventually stalled and was allowed to fade away. Robert Durst withdrew. His relations with Kathy's family spoiled, and in the coming years, Durst grew more bitter towards his own relatives. Lewin explains that as the eldest son in the Durst organization, Robert was expected to take over the business, but by 1994, Seymour Durst had decided that Robert was not suitable to run the company, and he was passed over for his younger brother, Douglas. Robert was outraged. He felt robbed of his birthright. Now, this would lead to a level of hatred and hostility that Bob Durst continues to harbor to this day. While Durst withdrew into himself in New York in the wake of Kathy's disappearance, Susan Berman moved to Los Angeles. After the success of her autobiographical novel, Easy Street, Susan had her sights set on becoming a Hollywood screenwriter. In June of 1983, Susan married a man named Mr. Margulies. Mr. is not an honorific in this instance. Mr. was what Margulies called himself. That would be the peak of Susan's life. She was successful. She was marrying somebody she cared about. And from that day forward, her life was going to head in a downhill spiral. Bob Durst attended the wedding. Well, she got married. It went nowhere. But I walked her down the aisle to her wedding. And we saw each other frequently, frequently when, when I would be out there. Now, although Susan was unaware of it at the time, Mr. 
was addicted to drugs, and Susan would reluctantly divorce him later that same year, and the marriage didn't even last a year. In 1986, Mr. died of a heroin overdose. In 1987, Susan tried to find love again when she began dating her former classmate, Paul Kaufman. The couple's lives quickly intertwined, and Susan became a surrogate mother to Paul's teenagers, Mel and Sarab. Paul was a financial advisor with Hollywood aspirations, and he had a vision for how he would achieve success. He decided that he would produce a musical on Broadway, a staged version of The Dreyfus Affair, a political scandal in late 19th century France that came to symbolize miscarriage of justice and anti-Semitism. Funding was short, so Paul convinced Susan to put all her savings into the production. There's an old saying, and apparently it applies to Broadway musicals, and it applies to uh, horse racing. What's the best way to become a millionaire on Broadway? Start with a billion. <laughs> and unfortunately, Paul Kaufman lost all of Susan's money. <laughs> it never opened, and he lost it all. With Susan's money gone, Paul left her, but he kept his kids behind, and Susan took care of the children, even though they were not married, there's no legal relationship, so Paul left, Susan basically got the kids. By 1997, Susan had lost her home in Brentwood, and she rented a small, now run-down house at 1527 Benedict Canyon Drive near Beverly Hills. The house was down and out, as was Susan's career, and as was her life in general. This is what the house looked like the time that Susan was murdered. Two photos of the interior of Susan's home appear on Lewin's PowerPoint. The first shows a dusty living space with a concrete floor. Towels serve as makeshift blinds, shielding a dog crate from sunlight. The second photo is a bedroom occupied only by a faded floral mattress and a fan. The walls are bare, a stark white. She's basically living in squalor. She had three dogs and they were the love of her life. Witnesses are gonna tell you that. Susan continued to pay for expensive vet care and dog food that she couldn't afford because that was her priority. Susan was desperate for money so she asked her friend Robert for help. In response, Durst was surprisingly charitable. He purportedly sent Susan several checks for $25,000. She received them once or twice a year during her periods of financial distress. Now, the is gonna show that Bob Durst is not generous with any of his other friends. But for Susan, he was giving her large amounts of money. And the evidence will demonstrate that he was giving her these large amounts of money because Susan had an important secret. The secret may have given Susan leverage to ask Robert for money, but according to the prosecution, her windfall wouldn't last forever. Eventually, the secret would result in her murder. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. 
here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Now in late 1999, New York State police detectives secretly began reinvestigating Kathy's disappearance. So we know now in 2000 that uh, uh, something happened that uh, piqued Janine Pirro's interest and got the Westchester District Attorney, Janine Pirro, interested in you again. Tell me about that. When it got to me from Wendy, it was that there were going to be newspaper articles and we should meet with a lawyer. And then did, did it turn out to affect you? How did it, when did oh, it? Oh, it blew me away. The fact that they're sending divers into the lake in the middle of the winter and <laughs> They're taking a wall out of the house that was in the newspaper article. I mean, they're, they're going to do something. Janine Pirro's got to do something. And I'd never heard the name Janine Pirro before. Janine Pirro is a Republican media personality known for her flashy white smile, brash New Yorker attitude, and tough on crime sound bites. If you don't know her name, then it's likely you've seen her face. She is the host of Fox News Channel's Justice with Judge Janine, and has often been lampooned by Cecily Strong on Saturday Night Live. But back in the late 90s, Pirro wasn't nearly the right-wing celebrity she is today. As the Westchester County District Attorney, Janine Pirro had aspirations of higher office, and she wasn't shy about digging up high-profile cases to generate media attention. And do you know what piqued her interest originally, what got her interest in the case? Oh, what was it? They arrested a flasher, and he said, oh, let me off. I know all about Durst. That flasher was a man named Timmy Martin. In the late 1990s, he parked his light blue car in the Westchester countryside and flagged over a couple of women. When they approached, they saw his pants were open, and he was masturbating. In 1999, shortly before being sentenced for public lewdness, Timmy told the police that he had something they might be interested in. He claimed to know where Kathy Durst's body was buried. The tip sparked new interest in the cold case, and though Timmy's lead was ultimately a dead end, the investigation carried on, bolstered by the work of Detective Joe Becerra and the drive of Janine Pirro. Then I guess Janine Pirro did a press conference in uh, November of 2000, I think it was. So her, the position was that they were trying to reopen the, the case. If they and were they... reopening it. We have evidence against this rich guy, Durst. The news that Jeannie Pirro was reopening the investigation into Kathy Durst's disappearance propelled Robert Durst into a series of actions. According to the prosecution, those actions culminated in Durst trying to protect his darkest secret by killing his best friend. 
on the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. The whole idea of being charged with something, having people invest, and not so much investigate, but, but that people are going to find me guilty. I mean, I, I've been guilty for years in the newspapers, etc., etc. Now they're really going to find me guilty. Frightened by the media attention and the possibility of being charged with murder, Durst decided to go into hiding. Went to Dallas, went to a wig store, tried on the wig. This looks pretty, pretty, pretty good. The hair here, the hair here. Uh, good shave. I'm going to be looking sort of like a woman. So the evidence is going to show that according to Mr. Durst's testimony, he gave Susan Berman $50,000 roughly in the last um, little over month of her life. Now on November 11, 2000, this is when the media began reporting the reinvestigation. He said the Los Angeles police contacted me and they want to talk to me about Kathy Durst's disappearance. Now the evidence will demonstrate that it was that conversation that statement by Susan Berman to Bob Durst that sealed her fate. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst was created by Carrie Antholis. This episode was hosted and produced by Carrie Antholis and co-produced by Chris Terracone. The episode was written by Molly Miller with contributions from Karen Ann Coburn, Sean Smith, and Chris Terracone. The episode was edited by Tristan Friedberg Rodman. Music was provided by Strike Audio. For more information about the Robert Durst trial, head over to crimestory.com. This has been a Crime Story Media and ACAST presentation. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. <laughs>